0: to the August 15th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway and I'll be joined shortly by Romeo Kokratsky for an interview with a labor activist to discuss the recent changes to the labor code of Ukraine to make way for some unfortunate wartime measures. But first I will do what I did last episode, which is to give a very truncated version of the combat update just to let everyone know what the situation is on the ground before delving into our more specialized topic of the episode. So looking at Donbass, last episode I was talking about how the effort has largely shifted south towards the Avdivka front. Avdivka being The largest major city next to Donetsk city itself, really a suburb of Donetsk. This has been a major hard point of the war ever since the very beginning, and being able to take the Avdivka area would be a major feather in the cap of any Russian commander who is able to do it, since all have failed thus far. Now on the Evdivka front itself, if we zoom in even further, we have to look at Pisky, which is a very small suburb, basically immediately outside of Donetsk's city limits. The Donetsk airport, famous for the major battles of 2014-2015, is right next to this town of Pisky. In the drive towards Evdivka, Pisky is the major hard point that the Russians have to clear before moving onward, and their push for it has been intense. The Russians have claimed they have taken the entire city, but this has been disputed and seems not to be true. Uh, The city, well, town, village even, really, uh, appears to be contested, but there's no firm Russian control despite what they have been claiming. But ultimately, Pisky doesn't exist anymore. Looking at pictures of it, it has been leveled to the ground. Looking elsewhere on the Donbass front, there has been additional very slow moves by the Russian military advancing on Bakhmut, but just a handful of kilometers either way. This has been a very stalled offensive that they have been making in this direction. Next, looking at the south to Kherson, the Kherson offensive still has not come, and it seems like it will be quite a while longer before it does, honestly. The Russians have moved a significant force into the Kherson region in order to block any advance by the Ukrainian military, so serious offensive movements do not seem very likely in the near future. However, by doing this, the Russians have put themselves into a very vulnerable position. In Donbass, they are very easily supplied from deeper into Russian-occupied territory and then onto Russia itself. Like we've discussed before, Kherson and the occupied regions west of the Dnipro River, it's not that easy. There are only a very small number of bridges over the Dnipro, and as of now, they have all been disabled. Ukrainian HIMARS rockets have significantly damaged each and every one of these bridges so the Russians are reduced to either using ferries or pontoons. Neither of these options are very efficient, so the transfer of supplies to from one side of the river to the other is a very long and arduous process when it could have just been driving over a bridge. So as of right now, it seems the Ukrainian strategy in this area is to simply let the Russians exhaust themselves. We've been talking about this many times before about Ukraine trying to create as much friction as possible, and this is another example. The Russians are now fighting Kherson in a way that is much more taxing on their supplies, and if they get pushed back at any point, then there's not very great ways to run away Way. If the Ukrainians are able to play this uh, in a very smart way, they can pin some Russians down onto on one side of the river without a, a way to escape other than um, some, a desperate attempt to ferry themselves over in stolen boats. So the more Russian soldiers in this Herson region and the fewer in Donbass means a harder war for the Russian army. But what are some of these specific things to draw attention to? One, uh, Saki Air Base in Crimea. Now, Saki Air Base is a major air force installation within Crimea. It is not very far away from Sevastopol. And somehow, there is no clear answer as to how. Um, all the explanations seem to be missing something. The Ukrainians were able to blow it up, taking out a good number of combat aircraft along with it. Now, this could have been done with a long-range rocket, but officially, Ukraine doesn't have any rockets that can reach that far, so it'd have to be something not on the books. Another explanation offered was that it was a special forces, uh, partisan warfare kind of deal, where they're able to boat into Crimea, lay the explosives, and blow them up like that, or otherwise use some kind of guidance from boots on the ground. Again, this seems to have holes in it because that would be very very deep behind enemy lines mission that the Russians did not see coming have not announced that they are able to find any proof of it. So if this was done by Ukrainian special forces, it would have been an absolutely remarkable feat and Really, the blast damage does not seem to correspond with uh, like uh, the types of bombs that you would use in this kind of operation. It seems to be very large blast craters, like from a very large missile. But who knows? Uh, Ukraine isn't giving the details, because whatever it was, it was very clear, clearly secret, secret school kind of stuff. And the Russians are saying it was an accident. They're denying that it was a result of any Ukrainian attack whatsoever but rather just a run-of-the-mill industrial oopsie, which kind of seems more embarrassing than the other options. A pretty dumb lie, but so be it. And this has been accompanied with many images of Russians who were vacationing in Crimea to flee over the Kerch Strait Bridge, cutting their vacation short very closely. And there's a bit of schadenfreude in this. Occupiers should not be able to have fun in their occupied territory. I'm sorry. They can go home. So there's a all the schadenfreude that comes from that is then balanced out by the sheer existential horror of this next news item. The Russians have been launching many artillery strikes from within the grounds of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and reportedly they have even shelled the plant itself. Now, nuclear power plants are nothing to mess around with. This is the largest nuclear plant in Europe. If it goes critical, if for whatever reason there is damage to the reactors, this would make Chernobyl look like child's play. The United Nations has called on Russia to make this nuclear power plant a demilitarized zone to make the risk of this go away, but Russia has denied. It wants to hold this place hostage in case Ukraine advances on it further. They can just hold it for ransom, saying, if if we are forced out of this area, we will create the largest disaster possibly in Ukrainian or even world history, depending on how they plan to do this. Reportedly, they have mined various parts of the power plant in order to detonate it in case this scenario uh, they, they are faced with it. And finally, there is news out of Mariupol. The Russian occupation authorities have declared their intention of holding a trial of Ukrainian soldiers, much like the the sham trials that we've seen of the uh, various foreign-born fighters that have been sentenced to death, although that sentence has not been carried out with. And they're going to hold this trial for a, a much larger number of Ukrainian fighters than they have before, and they're going to do it on August 24th. Ukrainian Independence Day in order to make a point. They have already constructed cages within the Mariupol Philharmonic Hall, where they're going to treat this as quite literally a show trial on a stage. Just disgusting stuff. The prisoners of war will likely be sentenced to death. But that is our news updates from this week. Uh, Some... (laughs) Some things to celebrate, such as the Crimea Air Force Base being destroyed. Other things, obviously, to mourn. But onwards to our interview. Doing something a little bit different. Uh, most of our topics since, well, the last few months, the beginning of the expanded invasion has largely focused on issues of the war, focused on international questions, but now we're kind of go back to our basics. We used to be more uh, kind of in the weeds, domestic politics type of podcast. So here we are back to our roots. Uh, recently, there has been a a push for a law that would completely reform Many aspects of labor law in Ukraine, in many ways, for the worse. But we wanted to get more of an expert on to to speak on this in more detail. So here is Vladislav Starodubsev, a democratic socialist and an activist with the Sozialny Ruch or Social Movement. Vlad, welcome.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'm Vladislav. I'm a social activist that are uh, working on the issue of labor laws uh, and. Uh, push of uh, neoliberal reforms not the first year as uh, a social activists, uh, ground activists that are campaigning against this uh, uh, laws and against such awful reforms in times of war. So thank you for inviting me.
2: Yeah, we're glad to have you on and uh, thanks for joining us. Can you give us an overview of what these entailed reforms or what these reforms entail um, and how the, the, kind of the current system is going to be impacted um, by these new regulations?
1: Mostly, it's a very complex project of uh, deregulation of uh, labor relations and labor guarantees and security that are undergone in times of the war. Um, first decision that was made uh, by the government uh, in the start of the war about uh, labor law is to just cancel all labor inspections that uh, are looking for, uh, like, uh, um, some uh, mistakes or uh, some illegal actions by the employee.
2: When you say labor inspections, you mean, like, there's some government agency that goes into, like, a workplace and looks for, like, violations, like people being mistreated or not being allowed to take breaks or things like that?
1: Yeah, and uh, when the war started, absolutely, moratorium on all labor inspections. So it's a lot harder to give uh, just outlook of labor conditions and how legal uh, the status of this condition. And uh, you basically cannot do anything in this situation. So the first action of the government was to introduce this moratorium and actually cut a lot of uh, other civil inspections, uh, cut uh, their uh, employee numbers, And uh, in this situation, it became a lot harder to defend your workers' rights. But it's not all. Uh, A few uh, weeks after the war, government introduced a law uh, uh, 2.1.3.4, 3.6, that is about uh, deregulation of uh, labor relations in terms of war. And practically, this law uh, created new possibilities uh, to fire people, uh, to cut wages, Um, Created legal possibility for having 60 hour working week in terms of work, for having pregnant women work uh, in the night and work uh, over eight hours a day, and also they cut uh, financing of uh, trading activity in this law. So, and introduced new possibilities for firing people. Uh, And this was the first action of the government uh, in terms of. labor security in terms of the work. Of course, it's absolutely awful. It, this uh, new law uh, creates a lot of insecurities for people who are working, for people who are employed, especially near the front line, because near the front line, uh, employees uh, employers get a lot more possibilities to fire people. For example, if uh, uh, some property of employer is uh, uh, destroyed, they can fire a person without any compensation because uh, they could no longer provide a possibility for work.
2: Now, in 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 normal times, um, this this isn't technically the case, right? Ukraine doesn't have uh, what what is called in the U.S. at will employment. That is, uh, an employer can, in some cases, and not all. And we're going to get into the exceptions here, but in some cases, employers cannot summarily dismiss you for waking up on the wrong side of the bed. Um, there is a, a legal process, typically, um, that an employer has to go through to actually terminate um, an employee's contract. Uh, so with the war, this is uh, this obviously changed. Now, a supporter of these changes would say, well, it's wartime and sacrifices have to be made.
1: Yeah, but uh, sacrifices on behalf of who? So you have an employer or provide job but employer a lot of more socially secured in terms of money in terms of property in terms of just uh, uh, having possibility to live than the people who are employed because uh, you can imagine how a lot of uh, social stress is put on the person uh, in terms of the work, how uh, much uh, they're insecure and in this time they need at least some basic guarantees to their income um to their job to their wages to just live a decent life uh, and uh, have at least some stability in the situation where uh, there's not much stability at all and in this situation you either cut on the behalf of the employer who before the war accepted some social uh, conditions and social uh social contract that uh you like work on me uh i pay you uh wages And I follow labor codex. And now uh, all this social contracting is gone absolutely in favor of employer, not in favor of uh, balancing or worker more vulnerable in this situation, but employer.
2: Now, how has the government defended this move? I mean, this sounds pretty controversial from a worker's perspective. Uh, What was the government's argument when they started pushing for for this bill?
1: Uh, government uh, have such, uh, you know, market fundamentalist the uh, ideology They think that, that uh, business should come first because business provides new jobs and uh, provides development and so on and so on. And that uh, all the labor securities and so on and so on will come only second. So they're pushing for pr- uh, business priority in these relations. And of course, it provides a lot of insecurities and uh, creates very unfavorable, uh, unfavorable conditions for the workers. But uh, uh, that's what they are doing, and it's absolutely, uh, you know, an uh, pragmatical decision for people who need to find at least food, transportation, living, and uh, who are especially vulnerable in the front line can be the most easily dismissed. But that's not the loss that were pushed. Uh, I think we'll talk about a little
2: bit later. Yeah, of course. I just wanted to know, so is this a, a permanent measure that the government has kind of pushed through? Because the last time um, the Zelensky administration attempted to, to push through labor reform, it was actually beaten back by the unions, um, by worker protests, and the government had to dump their labor reform plans. Um, this was a few years ago. Uh, now that they they've it, it seems like they've taken that that same failed reform they've dusted it off and said, "Well, now it's war now we can do this um, but is this going to to be permanent after the war or is this strictly a wartime measure
0: And to um, hone down on that question a little bit, what I would be wondering about is how much of this is like formal law, like legislation, and how much of it is just administrative decisions that can you no, know, come and go by the day and can be changed like that. So, how much is formal? How much is informal?
1: Mm, it's absolutely legislation. It's uh, now official document that regulates uh, labor law in times of war. It's important. It's not uh, all of the time. Only times of war. And uh, actually, this law uh, is used uh, like have more authority than uh, labor codex at the moment.
2: So, what kind of other like? I guess restrictions on workers' rights does this bill introduce? Like now that it's passed, obviously you can be fired for any reason. Um, you mentioned that uh, there's no work hour restrictions. Like pregnant women can be made to work more than eight hours a day. People can be made to work longer than 40-hour weeks. Um, what other kind of restrictions have been placed on um, worker activity? Has has worker organizing been impacted? Like has trade union ati- activity has? Uh, been impacted in any way?
1: Yeah, um, firstly, uh, employer had a have a possibility now to uh, one-sidedly overlook some uh, points of the collective agreement, and also can uh, delay wages without uh, some. Um, it's very different, uh, uh, very strange formulation like uh, special conditions. So when some mythical special conditions are met, uh, employer can just delay wages without any actual good reasoning. And about uh, so there's
0: no like criteria for this. There's no like checklist yeah, yeah. they have to follow.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, about trade unions, uh, some fina- financing that was uh, necessary uh, by employer to trade unions are cut. For example, uh, for now uh, employers uh, have. Possibility to not to provide money for uh, some collective actions of trade unions for some uh, like uh, uh, sport uh, and uh, some infrastructure for trade unions. They don't need to to pay for this in times of war.
2: Actually, that raises the question. um, What have the unions been doing during wartime? We've seen lots of volunteer initiatives um, been launched by private individuals, a lot of mutual aid has been organized. Um, but I haven't heard much about what the Ukraine's unions in general have been doing um, to, to assist in, in the war effort. Uh, what has been their kind of main focus of activity, I
1: guess? Um, I think it's helping uh, internal refugees because trade unions have a lot of property, a lot of uh, bases uh, then, uh, that they uh, kind of Uh, were purposed uh, to help refugees all over the country. So all this network of the property of the trade unions uh, from the Soviet time are now used uh, as uh, some infrastructure hubs for uh, humanitarian aid or uh, refugee centers uh, for helping uh, to uh, people who are most vulnerable in this situation. So trade unions are pretty active in providing this help. And also, of course, a lot of people from trade unions are actually on the front line. And so, what trade unions are doing is uh, are helping the same people that are fighting in the front line directly. Like uh, if uh, uh, on front line some groups from one same trade union, people who left home trying to contact them, ask what they are needing, military equipment, and so on and so on. And it's pretty active. And with this trade unions also trying to. Um, push for international solidarity with other big European trade unions. They're accepting humanitarian aid from biggest trade unions from Great Britain, France, uh, Germany, and generally in Europe, um, which are going then to Ukrainian trade unions, and this Ukrainian trade unions uh, move this uh, humanitarian aid to front line.
2: So. and actually, we've seen some um, solidarity actions uh, from trade unions abroad in support of uh Ukraine i believe there was a longshoreman
0: the longshoreman action not taking uh british ports uh, that happened
2: yeah yeah exactly um and we've seen uh longshoremen reject russian shipments uh as well in european ports uh so this this kind of outreach has had a a noticeable impact outside of the, of the country um and anything, obviously, that hurts Russia's industrial capabilities to wage war on us uh, is, is absolutely something to to be encouraged, um, though, going back to the law for a second. Um, so now, basically, we don't have we don't have any rights. Right. Uh, as, as far as I understand, we can be fired for any reason. We have to work as much as our employers want us. Is there any labor protections left for workers?
0: Actually, before we kind of go on on that, we do have to remember that our audience is primarily American, and I feel like from an American standpoint, these things actually don't sound that unusual. Um, but Ukraine actually does have, at least on paper, very robust uh, labor protections. Uh, Romo, when we were working at UATV, for example, there was one woman who was um, being pressured pretty heavily uh, by the management, and but legally speaking, she was basically safe from them entirely, so they had to be a bit more
2: um, informal about their pressure towards her. I mean, that's exactly how it worked out for me when UATV wanted to get rid of me. They could not fire me. Um, they had to basically bribe me into resigning. Um, they offered me a month's salary uh, up front if I would resign because to fire me would involve um, tribunals, reclamations people looking into other people's business which ukrainians typically are heavily averse to um so it was uh it w- it was quite quite a useful thing i i have to say
0: yeah so to our audience take your conceptions about things like right to work uh, i hate that phrase but that's what its called Where basically it uh, it makes union participation basically pointless um and all these other very anti labor policies that have been passed since the 1980s. That is not a factor in Ukraine. The the at a so baseline
2: level that's the labor- not entirely true. Mm-hmm. Um, Ukraine has a lot of labor protections on paper. Yes, as, on um, paper is the important. Vladislav part. mentioned we have the the labor codex, which is um, a lot of carryover from the Soviet Union with. Um, the the correspondingly strong labor rights, which, by the way, in the Soviet Union, were not so closely followed. Um, but because Ukraine's economy is so much in the gray or black markets, a lot of these labor protections simply don't apply. Um, on top of that, Ukrainian, Ukraine's justice system has for the longest time been a corrupt cesspool of filth and refuse, uh, where the party with the largest pockets tend to win um, whatever the dispute was. Uh, of course, this also applied to labor disputes. Uh, however, when you are employed by, for example, a state agency, a state-owned company, um, which is a decent chunk of the, the kind of official economy of Ukraine, then you do at least have some recourse. You are not left out in the code. Though I do want to know one of the ways that the, the, Zelen, uh, the Zelensky administration has been attempting to circumvent the labor codex even before the war um, was this the, there was this sort of unofficial encouragement for people to sign up as individual entrepreneurs, um, basically as, as um, self-employed contractors, uh, meaning that when a company hires you. You you're not typically a uh, an employee. You the company has a contract with your kind of firm, um, and that contract can be abrogated uh, at any time by either party. So there's a lot of basically ways that people went uh, about um, kind finding loopholes in the labor law. But I do want to make clear that for a, a large amount of people. It did. The labor protections did work. I mean, I'm I, I personally have experience with that um, when I worked for UATV and I was uh, able to negotiate myself basically a severance package, even though what they wanted to do was fire me. Uh, so these are very important protections, even when they don't work 100 percent. They still give people options that they otherwise would have would not have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before all of this law, you can easily be defended in court on even given some absolutely astonishing compensation uh, with hundreds of thousands of grievances. Uh, if you were uh, fired illegally and you can prove this, uh, then you actually paid compensation for all the time that you were absent from the work uh, without uh, your reasoning. So. Uh, like uh, on behalf of, of the employer not giving possibility for work but not having legal uh, permission for, for firing you if uh, employer should pay a lot of compensation and it still stands uh, but uh, a lot of new reasoning for firing people especially closer to frontline uh were created so it's a lot uh, It a lot of this depends for now on the labor agreements that were signed between worker and uh, employer, uh, and uh, practically about uh, these guarantees that left in the labor codex. Uh, and of course, uh, trade unions still have, unfortunately, not as much as before, but a possibility to defend from a firing person. And uh, if uh, employer tried to push the spying legally. Uh, it very easily could be uh, argued in court and even be won
0: so uh, you you said mentioned the the front lines and proximity to them Does proximity to the fighting does that have any kind of a formal consideration in these like, what i mean is does a worker in Lviv or Lutsk or Ivano-Frankivsk still have a bit more protections than, say, someone in Kharkiv or Zaporizhia? Like, is that like a formal decision?
1: Formally, yes. Because, uh, of, as I said, uh, if a property of a business is harmed, they could just easily fire a person without uh, all of this procedure to justify this firing. And uh, in Lviv, uh, of course, because it's more safe, uh, it's somehow hard to justify such firings, so yeah
0: but that still kind of comes down to like a case-by-case basis or yes. okay
2: now um it, again i want to go back to this point of of this being a temporary change versus a permanent one obviously uh a, if this was a a permanent change to the labor law uh it would be i think incredibly uh contentious decision Um, But at the moment, the government is saying this is only a a temporary change. Do you think that's true, or do you think that uh, the Zelensky administration will try and sneak this through uh, even after the war is over? Create facts on the ground.
1: Uh, They actually tried, and uh, a few times, and a few times failed, uh, mostly because of the resistance of uh, like left-wing social activists, trade unions uh, that are kind of shocked by this uh, loss and uh, so uh, awful uh, push uh, for cutting their rights in times of war. So there was a try and kind of successful for uh, accept, uh, accepting this uh, as uh, uh, all-time measures, but with some um, like changes to this law. And uh, with the introduction of 5371 law, They tried to do this. They they tried to legalize all of these things for even after the war. But they kind of succeeded and they accepted new law. But because of the pressure, it's also a law uh, for uh, temporary time for the war situation. So they kind of failed to push this. But they pushed uh, uh, zero-hour contracts for all of the time. And they pushed uh, that... uh, People frontline have cancelled uh, right to keep uh, the wage uh, of the people who were employed and mobilized during the war. So this uh, will apply even uh, if I don't know if Ukraine will enter another conflict uh, or something bad happens. Uh, this uh, uh, law, you know, uh, is now timeless. But uh, the main law about uh, deregulation labor law uh, is actually temporary for now. I don't know for how much long because uh, practically every two weeks a new anti-labor law is pushed in parliament um, and they try to justify another cuttings. And actually they're pressuring trade unions uh, to subjugate them uh, using some loophole in uh, like property relation and property regulation uh, from the Soviet Union time because uh, Ukrainian trade unions actually got their property from Soviet Union trade unions, just uh, passed to the Ukrainian one. And because of this, uh, government have possibility to push for redefining legal status of this property. And when uh, trade unions trying to oppose uh, new anti-labor laws, government just brings uh, this laws again and again and saying, okay, if you're trying to oppose uh, our labor laws, we, we will just uh, hand your property to the state. So they're just doing some kind of a pervert uh, nationalization of trade union property.
0: A uh, uh, nice building you got there. Shame if anything happened to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty, sh- kind of the, the twisted logic of that where essentially... Um, because this property was uh, handed down from Soviet times when it was, you know, public in some way. Oh, state-owned, at least. State-owned. So to reverse that, it will then be state. It just seems very um, confusing and backwards logic. We're going to
2: do a nationalization to you in response to this. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that the government made something called zero-hour contracts, Um, permanent. So could you explain what those are and what that means um, for Ukrainian workers? And this is something that has really been one
0: of the center points of the labor struggle in the UK, for example.
1: Yeah, it's uh, basically rates, possib- uh, shifts uh, responsibility for providing uh, work to the employed. So now uh, employer can uh, write in the contracts, in the labor contracts or individual contracts, uh, new points uh, uh, that they actually <laughs> shouldn't provide work. It's absolutely absurd uh, that a person um, can uh, be in the situation where uh, no work provided and no compensation for not providing work is given. So in this situation, uh, one person can, for example, have the work, uh, being officially employed, but having uh, paid less than minimal wage because uh, now uh, employer can just not pay. uh,
0: Well, Vlad, you laugh, but uh, as an American, I've had several of those jobs where those were the rules, where there was no guaranteed work hours and therefore no guaranteed salary, even though technically being on the books. So
2: it's it's yeah, just kind yeah, of funny in ukraine the the labor rights here are um in many ways a lot better than in the united states um if you notice the, the this idea which is so observed uh to vladislav is completely normal and unimaginably normal um to an american or or to someone from the u k or from other uh neoliberal western countries where Uh, Employers can, in fact, hire you, require you to be on call indefinitely, um, but make no guarantee of how many hours they can give you. Uh, Obviously, this is an incredible problem because you can't work a second job while you're on call for the first, and you don't know uh, whether or not you're going to get the actual call to come in and earn money uh, during the time when you're not earning money. Um, Considering you have to work to buy food, and have a roof over your head. Um, this is a worrying, uh, a pretty worrying situation. Yeah, not
0: not all uh not all America like reforms are good. So there's some things America does very, very poorly, and this is one of them. So I I'm concerned of Ukraine following in America's footsteps in this way.
1: Yeah, and actually Ukraine does it like uh, uh Ukraine thinks of itself as vanguard of newly built reforms because other countries in the region also provide zero-hour contracts, but they provide it in, like, at least some adequate way, uh, forcing some limitation. For example, uh, like, employer cannot just call you at night and say, okay, uh, I give you a job, you have two hours to complete it. Uh, In Ukraine, you can. For example, in Lithuania, employer cannot uh, do this. It's uh, very strict uh, uh, conditions. of this zero-hour contracts, and uh, when employer can call, uh, on what conditions, and what at least some like minimal payment uh, should be given, and so on and so on. So uh, nothing like this in Ukrainian uh, law. It just absolutely uh, what it says: zero-hour contracts. That's it. So yeah, and it's absolutely awful practice, uh, especially in times of war. Uh, because it, it brings a lot of instability to people. Um, you need to pay for, for some basic things. And uh, you actually don't know what will happen uh, in the next week. Uh, could you afford living? Could you afford just food? Or, uh, for example, if you, uh, if your house will be destroyed or something like this happens. Uh, what you will do. And, uh, yeah, it creates absolutely together with all other uh, laws. It creates situation where the person is just hanged in, in very insecure state, uh, without possibility of government intervening and helping, without social guarantees, and without actually um, power of trade unions behind him. So yeah.
2: Now another, I think, factor of the um, trade or, or of this um, kind of changes the labor law that that is not looked at is kind of is the the people's protest against. I mean you mentioned um that previous attempts before the war to pass these kinds of reforms had all failed. Um left-wing activists, trade unions, um worker organizations kind of got together, pressured the government enough um and and got enough um bad press for these measures to ensure that they weren't passed. Um the prior one of the prior um, ministers of the economy, um, Timofey uh actually kind of dropped his labor reform proposals entirely, very quietly, and then was soon fired, um, presumably for being unable to deliver on this, um, simply because the, the pressure against him uh, was so great. But we haven't seen any pressure now. Do you think this kind of fighting against these radi- uh, labor reforms are going to start only after the war? Or are people already trying to, to fight these measures now?
1: You know, there's not much of legal possibility to fight against it. Um, in media, people trying to say that they're against uh, all major trade unions uh, trying to push this. Uh, we have, like, in uh, Verkhovna Rada, a uh, commission of, uh, like, dialogue between trade unions and uh, social policy ministry. Uh, they're always saying that, okay, we are against it we will not do this, and so on, and so on, and uh, contacting uh, deputies and members of parliaments, and so on, and so on, and uh, pushing to international contracts, uh, contacts, for example, for uh, like European Trade Union Congress and International Trade Union Congress, uh, uh, they had statements uh, that were sent to Zelensky to veto these laws. Uh, the same statement had uh, uh, was made by an international Labor Organization, but of course uh, this pressure—it's—it's uh, uh, it's very limited because uh, we cannot protest in the moment, and government uses this in all of the way possible. Uh, they're basically saying, "Okay, uh, we have a war, uh, so you're not patriotic enough. Why you need this?" And uh, they're just using such. Uh, very helpful uh, arguments to justify this push now. Uh, so, the situation kind of like this there are some backlashes to these uh, laws, and sometimes it, it's very serious because uh, these laws actually going against uh, European integration uh, treaties, and because of this, some pressure uh, was mounted from Euro integrationists uh, like commissions in Verkhovna Rada and in the European Union. So it kind of helps, but not much. And uh, this labor reform that you were talking about, it's actually reintroduced now. So they're also trying to vote, uh, um, vote for this uh, old uh, labor, uh, new labor codex. And uh, literally a few days uh, before this interview, they just dropped, okay, now we will try to push this. And, uh, yeah, so they're trying to use every possibility that uh, they can. So even re- reintroducing this uh, document by Milovanov, uh, Milovanov. So it's, yeah.
2: So it sounds like the Zelensky administration is kind of uh, using uh, the war in some ways as an excuse to push through a bunch of very unpopular reforms
1: yeah they just have uh, their time of the life <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, they tried to push the same laws uh, in last year before this, and actually Poroshenko government tried to push pretty much the same reforms, but they always failed because uh, trade unions were against uh, people were against, and they were mounting enough support to stop this and now you cannot mount uh, support because. Everyone talks about the war. Media practically not interested in such things. And uh, protest uh, is impossible at the moment. Like uh, physical protest. So, yeah. But also there's some backlash in parliament. Um, For example, um, Bhatikishina party voted against the uh, 5371 law. And... uh, try to position themselves as like pro-workers party because uh, one of the member of parliament from the Batikivshina is actually leader of second biggest trade union in Ukraine, uh, Kavipu, and uh, it's Volonets, and he, he's doing a lot of job to push against this in parliament, but it's also not very effective, and uh, they're doing it uh, kind of passively.
2: Now, one of my kind of the uh, very... Technical concerns is here. Um, does do these new labor regulations also apply to um, government employees and people who work at state-owned enterprises? Like, if you wor- work, let's say you're an engineer for gas um, are you also now subject to this at-will firing, um, long hours, and uh, wage withdrawals, and so on? Or, or do you still have the protections of the Previous labor codex.
1: It's kind of hard to say, but mostly um, it's a lot better on the government, uh, um, government property. On uh, yeah, so uh, two one three uh, three six law actually applies uh, to all, but and you adopted uh, five three seven one only to the small and medium businesses. Uh, which are like seventy five percent of the employed uh, at the moment, and to the people who have uh, uh, like I don't remember uh, eight times uh, salary of minimal wage uh, so for them it's also applying, and all other people have the same guarantees as before um with some some limitation of course uh, but it's practically uh, the biggest uh, bigger part of the population are subject to this uh, changes, but uh, On the government firms, you kind of have a possibility to fight against. But another problem with the government firms is that uh, with all of this neoliberal reform, there was also a neoliberal tax reform. So they just underfinanced, even if they wanted to give a fair wage and to follow all all these laws. They just don't have enough money for this because uh, absolutely horrible tax cuts. Uh, finance cuts uh, uh, and uh, completely collapsing budget, partly be- because of the war and partly because uh, of uh, neoliberal reforms. So it's also a very um, controversial topic. For example, a lot of uh, people who are working in Ukraine uh, or uh, in medical sphere, uh, they're still having their wage uh, uh, limited uh, or just uh, mass firings uh, happening. Uh, But in theory, they should be secured better.
0: So one of my earlier, you mentioned that there has been some efforts through the the EU, uh, various or or various organs in the EU to kind of prevent uh, these unjust uh, practices. But has there been any outside pressure on Ukraine in order to uh, pass these really neoliberal reforms? Because. I'm thinking to the last uh, few years where there has been a very large push to push new um to define our terms neoliberalism basically being deregulation um uh, busting trade unions st- yeah stripping of labor rights uh free trade basically think Reagan Thatcher and everything that came after them but has there been and, met, and there's been many cases where the IMF the United States have tried to push through some rather unpopular policies in Ukraine that would push this neoliberalism. I I remember at one point there was a push to basically fire most of the people working for Ukrainian railways, or at least it was like a proposal by some of the neoliberal kind of market wonks in Kiev that were representing European bodies. And looking back, the idea of losing a lot of the functionality of Ukrainian railways during the war when they've, they've really been a heroic story, it just blows your mind in hindsight, even without the economic uh, factor to it. So have there, has there been much proof of these kind of um, Western neoliberal uh, wonks, um, what's the word for them? consultant types that have been trying to push this kind of policy in Ukraine that would lead to this law specifically
1: mm-hmm. uh, IMF actually push mostly like uh, economic structures they are not pushing uh, some uh, labor laws and so on they're more concerned of the budget of the like uh, state or private uh, and so on and so on. so they pushing ne- uh, neoliberal reforms, but uh, in uh, other ways, uh, not uh, in liberal codes. codex. Of course, uh, they also uh, have impact on the labor relations, but uh, this is mostly like uh, deregulation of the budget, uh, like balanced budget and so on and so on and so on, and stripping of the social guarantees, social payments, and um, mostly about things that cost a lot of money provided by the government. But uh, there was a push a year ago to adopt the same laws by United Kingdom government, uh, and we have uh, like uh, official information about this because uh, uh, people who were state employed uh, um, at the like uh, I don't know state service uh, that regulates uh, labor relations, um, they were shown like guidebooks how to push uh, labor reforms uh, that uh, were made by uh, United Kingdom government. So it was like said, uh, okay, it's done by the uh, uh, embassy of uh, United Kingdom. So literally the Thatcher's guide to um, getting <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: workers yeah. rights.
1: <laughs> yeah, so they like, uh, had a presentation uh, in PDF file so okay, if uh, uh, trade unions will say that okay it's bad, uh, it's uh, uh, bad for social security or, or others say this, and if they say this, say this, and also pay money for these guys, uh, agitate on this media and uh, promote uh, that they uh, need this reform to be European, uh, to like have uh, pros- prosper economy and so on and so on. So uh, conservative government from the United Kingdom push uh, push this reform for sure. And uh, all other, uh, and I don't have enough information to say that other uh, governments push something similar, but I think uh, that uh, we can speculate on this.
2: Well, I mean, I have read um, there was a World Bank um, kind of state of the Ukrainian economy report, I think 2018 or something like this, um, where they explicitly mentioned that um the world bank believes ukraine's then labor uh, laws were too restrictive for employers and were inhibiting the um creation of a flexible labor market blah 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 um so th- th- there there definitely has been um pretty massive international pressure uh to uh reform and to strip workers rights in ukraine um as people in the U S and the UK can attest Ukraine's, uh, the labor protections offered in Ukraine are not common in the Western world. Um, they are seen by most Western governments to be a relic, um, of the, uh, of a past age when people could earn enough money to actually buy things, um, which is at odds with the current economic theory of People should have enough money to be starving every day so they work harder.
0: I'm also reminded of like the the Walmart training videos where they're like, remember, if you hear a fellow employee use the word union steward, be sure to uh, report them to your nearest manager.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So this like there is definitely um, been a push to to bring uh, a Walmartization of Ukraine. Let's 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 put it that way. Um, and not the other way around, but at the same time, like, um, I remember, uh, you mentioned, um, Vlislav, the, uh, ILO, the international labor organization. Now Ukraine is party to quite a number of, um, international labor treaties. Uh, and I, I remember that the last time, um, the government tried to do labor reform, the ILO actually said, if you are going to like remove all these rights, Um, then Ukraine will be open to, like, lawsuits uh, for violating these international treaties that we're a part of. Um, Is that still a factor now? Like, um, is there, like, a possibility of taking the Ukrainian government to court to force them to respect um, labor treaties that they've already signed, or is this just kind of like a fantasy?
1: Mm. It all depends. Uh, situation is uh, geopolitical situation is different, but uh, yes, uh, the um, reforms that are pushed now are uh, going against all the principles of international labor organization and all of the uh, treaties that were signed uh, with Ukraine with ILO uh, in two sideways. Uh, uh, it's of course uh, uh, absolutely illegal to push such reforms uh, in accordance to this treaties. And also uh, uh, if speaking about Euro integration in uh, a about Euro integration, there is also a part uh, for adhering to these law agreements. So, yeah, but we have now uh, the geopolitical situation of, okay, uh, you're patriotic uh, all need to support Ukraine and so on and so on. And in this situation, it will be probably hard to sue Ukrainian government. And also, it's not that international labor organization have a lot of power to do so. It's uh, uh, I think last few years, by Ukrainian government, uh, all uh, everything that ILO said was absolutely ignored, with uh, no uh, uh, backlash or some consequences it. So, theoretically, it is possible, but I don't think so.
2: So I think mostly um, what, the, what these reforms will add up to is that there's going to be a lot of work um, ahead after the war is over for activists like you and for the trade unions um, in making sure that uh, these temporary measures, uh, these temporary kind of uh, restrictions on workers' rights don't become permanent.
0: And since we're kind of closing in on our time here, I want to bring up one last thing, which is that, well, we've brought it up on this podcast a lot of times before that the international left has not had a very uh, sterling track record on Ukraine and the war. We're going to talk about it again. And why not? So, but just, just to, to make it more succinct and on topic. Is there anything, we've kind of talked about some of the the labor actions that have happened before, but from a left perspective, is there anything that can be done on an international level as far as, I don't know, uh lobbying or anything on that level that can be used to kind of uh, show solidarity for Ukrainian workers, both against the, you know, the war itself, but then this specific problem of the, the erosion of their rights.
1: Yes, I would say that uh, uh, I am, as a left-wing, get a lot of support, uh, as, as a left-winger, a lot of support from Western left in campaigning against this law. Of course, there's a big divide on the Ukrainian top, uh, issue between a like, uh, stupid part of the left that uh, don't understand anything and better just uh, not to speak about any issue ever again and uh, actual people who understand what they're doing. And uh, the second part is actually very helpful uh, in campaigning, in putting some pressure in all the way possible. For example, uh, from the Polish parliament, uh, some pressure was made by Party, from the Danish uh, and listened uh, and Finnish. Uh, in Finland, actually, there's a government with... Uh, uh, like radical socialist party uh, like a second in command uh, like social democratic and radical socialist and they also pushed uh, this topic uh, through their trade unions and uh, like uh, through embassy that's uh, you shouldn't accept this law um, from some like trade union activists left trade union activists uh, there was a lot of push for example, we have a petition that was made by Western left, mostly French left uh, with trade union background, uh, to Zelensky to veto all of these laws. And uh, actually, they did a good job uh, for like sending this petition to their local trade unions, to their uh, local uh, member of parliaments, and with this, they mounted like a few thousand or even... Uh, ten thousands of letter, uh, letters sent to the office of president uh, with a demand uh, from the trade unions to and member of parliaments to veto this law, uh, this laws. So yeah, some pressure from the adequate part of the left is absolutely exists and it's kind of helpful. And these trade unions, uh, especially with influential trade unions, uh, it changes things Somehow, somehow, for example, uh, the part that all of these laws, except zero-hour contracts, for uh, now temporarily, uh, I think, is on the part with reaction from trade unions, the left, and uh, international labor labor organization, big trade unions, politicians on the left flank, and so on and so on. That really, and of course, works of uh, us in Ukraine and Ukrainian trade unions that pushed uh, our government to step a little bit back and for now only adopting kids on temporary basis.
2: So
0: that is what actual left solidarity looks like. And, you know, uh, when people say we stand for the workers in Ukraine, it means that not uh, accepting an invasion, which Absolutely. seems to be what, what a lot of them seem
2: to be agitating for. Turns out standing up for workers' rights is leftism and standing a fascist genocidal dictatorship is not leftism.
0: <laughs> yes, precisely. So thank you very much, Vladislav. Um, can you uh, point us to any of your ongoing projects or the, the organization or what your organization is doing at the moment?
1: Okay, of course. Thank you for the interview and for this uh, spe- uh, for the possibility to have us sp- speak about this topic. I am actually a member of Ukrainian democratic socialist organization, Socialny Ruch, uh, that uh, works on the issue of labor law, of the labor guarantees. And for now, at the moment of the war, we are providing humanitarian help, of course, and actually free uh, consultation on the topic of the labor law. So, if anyone have uh, in Ukraine some problems uh, with their job, uh, they j- just can uh, message us on Facebook. It's very easy to find Socialny Ruch, and uh, we will help you and even bring this uh, to court and try to defend your workers' rights in any way possible in this situation. Thanks again, Vladislav.
2: That was Vladislav Starodubtsov from uh, Socialny Ruch.
0: That is our episode for the week. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you took something away from this somewhat unorthodox topic that is nonetheless quite important. We are trying to make a switch to bring many more interview subjects on, but if you would like to help us expand our reach, please go to patreon.com ukrainewithouthype and donate at whichever tier you find comfortable. Each has various benefits that go along with it. And speaking of which, I would like to thank our supporters who make everything possible. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana, Rajesh, Devi, Don, Giuseppe, Theo, Aiden, Alex, Amaya, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrovsky, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Deborah Lee, Eric Honold, George, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Hoem, James Wise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Jurd, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanlund, Laura De Leon, Levy Grove, Lottie. Melissa Koselko, Mike Lee Whiplash, Noam Hart, Nope, Patricia George, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Robert Bailey, Sanjay, Scott Gengras, Steve Bien, Steven Greenberg, T. Bart, Vic, and Will Stevens. Thank you all very much for your support. Until next episode, thank you all very much. Keep Ukraine in your thoughts and in your hearts. Support it to the best of your ability. And Slava Ukraini.